everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Heart disease is still one of the biggest causes of death in this country. However, the good news is that tremendous strides in treating what we call coronary artery disease has been made almost routine uh, for patients recovering from heart attacks, and they really have a good quality of life. And I know of this from even family members, so it's, it's really impressive what, what's being done. You know, by now, so many of my listeners and viewers uh, from this podcast have heard a lot about diet and exercises as ways to reduce your risk for cardiovascular disease. But there are still times when procedures and surgical intervention are necessary to save a life. My guest today is one of the top heart surgeons in the country. Dr. Todd Rosengard is the DeBakey Bard Professor and Chairman of Surgery at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And even if you've never heard of Dr. Rosengard, almost everybody in the medical field has heard of Dr. DeBakey. Dr. DeBakey was internationally known for his pioneering innovations in cardiac surgery. And I have to make the example. So for Dr. Rosengard to be following in Dr. DeBakey's footsteps, it's sort of akin to a basketball player putting on the Chicago Bulls jersey, number 23, and, and lacing up those Nike sneakers. Uh, so he, uh, he was obviously the, the next man for the job. On a quick personal note, Dr. Rosengard and I do have some history together. We go, both grew up a few houses apart in a small town called Lido Beach on Long Island in the 70s and 80s. And before I ever came up with the idea of this podcast or the title, The Smartest Doctor in the Room, I think we all knew when we were growing up, the smartest kid in our school. And in my case, it was Todd. Back in those days, the smartest kids usually had ambitions of becoming a doctor. Unfortunately, today, everybody wants to be the next software engineer at Google or a venture capitalist. But back then, it was to become a doctor and to go into medicine. But as I mentioned, the smartest kid in my school didn't disappoint. He's now leading the top cardiovascular team at Baylor uh, and the latest advances in the field. So it's my honor to welcome an old friend, Dr. Todd Rosengard, to the podcast. Thank you, Dean. That's very, very gracious and kind, terribly embarrassing, but um, we do love what we're doing. Uh, I'm glad to, uh, very glad to uh, be in the shoes of Dr. DeBakey. It's a, they're very big shoes to fill, and uh, we yeah. work very hard to try to accomplish that. Yeah, we'll get into that. I want to ask you a question. I usually like to start with background questions. Um, and I remember your dad, Martin, was a doctor, and uh, I was just wondering what influenced you to actually go into medicine, and even more specifically, cardiothoracic surgery, which is obviously one of the most intense training kind of programs in medicine. Yeah, great. That's a great question. So, you know, as you know, my dad passed away from a heart yes. attack when I when I was uh, 16. I don't know consciously that I ever said to myself that I am going to be a, a cardiologist or a cardiac surgeon, you know, to make sure people don't suffer uh, my, my dad's fate. Uh, but subconsciously, per perhaps that's the case. What did attract me to uh, um, cardiac disease, even as early as the 1970s or 80s, is um, back then there were ways of um, helping people with heart disease in a very definitive way. Um, and when my dad passed away, which was in 1976, coronary bypass surgery, for example, was just um, becoming validated, was just be becoming refined. 
And today, for example, uh, an individual can undergo coronary bypass surgery with a 98 or 99% chance of survival. It's amazing. Uh, my dad opted not to have bypass surgery because back then, and again, this is several generations ago, the mortality, the chance of not surviving um, that kind of surgery was 10 or 20%. Wow. Um, so we've logarithmically improved um, the chance of um, getting through heart surgery and, and doing well. And it's, it's quite honestly, when I was a resident back in the 1990s, it was not uncommon for, quote unquote, a patient to die on the table. Right. Um, unfortunately, in this day and age, that is, there is a rarity. Yeah. Uh, which really speaks for all the progress that has been made over the last 30 years. Yeah, you just said what I going to get. We, I was hoping to get into in the uh, the rest of the the podcast, which is so true. How it's really changed from being something. I mean, obviously, it's still a very uh, you know intense type of procedure, but that routinely people get better and have a great quality of life. I mean, my dad in his 80s, actually uh, late 70s, had bypass surgery. And he did amazing. You know, we were really fortunate he had it up here. Uh, I, th I was thinking about flying him down to Baylor, but uh, we have St. Francis. They're pretty good here, too. <laughs> um, all right, let me ask you another question, too, before we start getting to the medical part. So Dr. DeBakey. Now, I saw once, I think it was a documentary about him. He was a diminutive person. He was this tiny guy who you wouldn't think is that imposing, but apparently he was very imposing. And what I guess what really struck me in this documentary about him, he was at the time, I think, 90. Um, and he was still rounding. I don't think he was operating anymore, but I know that he did operate, I think, into his 80s. Did you get to meet him? What was he really like? And how did he affect your approach to surgery, obviously? Yeah, well, it's, it is a great legacy. And, you know, we have a DeBakey Museum here at Baylor. And anytime I feel too good about my doing a good job, I walk over the museum and it's quite a humbling experience. And, and he truly was a giant. And it's a reminder to me that any one person um, can make a big difference. Uh, obviously you need to have some natural talent and skill, but I think one of Dr. DeBakey's greatest assets was his drive and his perseverance. And if uh, you ever happen to be in Houston, uh, you or your listeners and uh, the, the museum is open, but it, it's, it is quite inspiring. Um, it's a different uh, age and world uh, today, but but the opportunity to make a difference, I think, is uh, is significant for any any one of us. And uh, again, it is a big part of the culture of uh, Baylor in general, and certainly our department is part of why it was so compelling to me to accept the opportunity to come down here. Did you get, I don't know, I remember, I think you were at Stony Brook, I know you were some other place. Did you get to meet him before you took position or did he I did not, I did, I did. Now his protege, and there's a lot of history behind it, which I cannot, I probably don't have time to get into. Yeah. But his protege was Denton Cooley. Oh, right, yeah, sure. Uh, there was a whole big fight between the two of them. That's I mean, exactly right. Right. Uh, Cooley was, was part of the Department of Surgery, was one of Dr. Uh, DeBakey's first major recruits. And there was a split in uh, 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 1968 uh, mm -hmm. uh, over the performance of the first artificial heart uh, right. implantation. Right. Very, right. very long story. And interestingly, around here, there's a real sense of that what became the rivalry between Dr. DeBakey and Dr. Cooley really drove both of them 
to do better, which, mm-hmm. is, which is interesting. One of the great things when I came here um, in 2012 is one of the first things I did is I welcomed Dr. Cooley back as an emer- distinguished emeritus professor. Oh, oh nice. Um, which of all things he said was the most significant thing, one of the most significant things ever to happen to him. Oh, wow. Uh, which which is quite interesting in, in terms of uh, where where this all, all balances out. But they, you know, just like the rest, rest of us there, mortals and and uh with all the human uh strengths and weaknesses but they were both very very driven individuals highly talented as surgeons uh but i think for both of them that pursuit of excellence and that literally is one of uh the mottos of our department of dr bakey's is is a, a big part of what drove both of them i i know many of uh many of their proteges are still in the department uh some older some of their younger residents and when they speak with me, they they always emphasize that uh, Dr. Tabaki as Dr. Cooley were always um, very focused on uh, being the very best they could possibly be. Uh, you know, one of the stories that once struck me about Dr. Tabaki, because I always like love following medical information, especially when it involves like prominent people. And you, I don't know if you heard the story, you probably did, or it's probably in the museum. You know, when Boris Yeltsin was sick, they flew Dr. Tabaki over to uh, the Soviet Union to evaluate him. And this is what I found fascinating. I think it was Lawrence Altman, who was a very big science writer for the New York yeah. Times for many years. And so and so DeBakey goes over there and like you figure, oh, he's gonna be involved in doing this very important procedure, whatever. But knowing his medical skills, he obviously, he actually carefully evaluated Yeltsin and found out he had a thyroid problem. And he said, no, no, he says, he does need surgery. I mean, this is what I remember. He does need surgery, but you have to correct this thyroid problem. Otherwise, there's going to be a problem. And that to me was so impressive because as you probably know, too, as a surgeon, I mean, look, it's obviously most people want a great surgeon who goes in there, but it's probably just as important selecting your patients, the preoperative evaluation, obviously, and the post uh, the postoperative care, which I got the sense this was what he was all about. Yeah, well, no, that that's absolutely right. And uh, interestingly, talking about proteges, um, he uh, brought a surgeon named George Noon uh, with him, who was one of one of his uh, proteges. Uh, George was a prolific uh, heart surgeon in his own right. Invented what was uh, one of the original prototypes of the artificial heart or the heart assist devices. And uh, and we're actually honoring Dr. Noon tomorrow with an endowed chair in his in his honor. Um, but uh, they they both went, and um, really that that concept of looking at the entire patient, um, being diligent about making sure you're covering all your bases, you're not missing anything, um, was part of the greatness of those surgeons. And unfortunately, I, I think it's it's not as common today. Um, mm. But that you're right, Dean. I think that plays a very very important role in in um, being in um, uh, providing great care. As a, as a physician of any kind, let alone a surgeon. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's get into cardiovascular disease. I think that's what obviously a lot of the listeners are going to be tuning in to find out about and how it's changed over the decades. Now, um, when I was an internal resident in internal medicine in New York City in the 1980s, um, we were in the explosion of the AIDS epidemic, but you know, I was at a, um, you know, an academic hospital in New York and we saw obviously a lot of cardiac patients. And, you know, part of my training, I went through what's called the coronary care unit. And it was interesting because it seemed, uh, St. Luke's Roosevelt also had a pretty good uh, heart surgery program. 
And uh, a lot of people came in from the tri-state area to get surgery there. It seemed like coronary bypass surgery or cabbage, as we used to write in our notes, was in its heyday. I mean, there was really like no lipid lowering agents back then. Balloon angioplasty was just starting. And like, as you mentioned, not, not the greatest results early on then. Um, but what's happened, you know, it almost seems like most people here today get stented, you know, who have cardiovascular disease. Is cardiac surgery, bypass surgery on the decline? Um, is it a different population that you're operating on? I mean, older people than they would ever touch before? Yeah, no, great, great questions. And um, so, um, yes, there is a very important role, of course, for stenting what we call PCI, percutaneous coronary in intervention. Um, there are also, however, are a number of very good studies that have been done over the last uh, 10 years. Um, syntax, ischemia, man, many, they go by many different uh, acronyms. And basically what, what they have shown is for patients, especially diabetics with advanced coronary disease, it basically means involves all three of the major arteries. Uh, the long-term results are, are re remain significantly better, um, significantly, literally by statistics, with bypass surgery than with angioplasty. You do pay a bit of a price up front, meaning you're having major surgery, you're in the hospital for three or four days, but long-term in terms of um, what's called event-free survival, meaning um, surviving without need for repeat interventions, repeat angioplasty, you do better with surgery. Again, diabetics, triple vessel disease, as we call it, uh, involving all three arteries, that's where the distinction is. And that, that's been uh, pretty well accepted. Now, coronary bypass surgery has uh, changed uh, as well. So for example, uh, we uh, perform coronary bypass surgery today without opening the chest, performing what we call median surgery. Really? Oh, that's, that, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask yeah. you. They used to say people used to have a big you know, scar down the midline. Yeah. Don't tell me it's, uh, what do they call well, it? So, no, it's Steve, not. Uh, what, what, what's it called again when you do just the? Um, <laughs> they do it for every other surgery now, like laparoscopic. Don't tell me it's laparoscopic. Well, yes. So um, <laughs> coronary bypass surgery, um, uh, we do what's called in some cases, not not certainly not always. Um, but uh, one of our surgeons here, for example, uh, performs about uh, two hundred robotic heart uh, operations a year. Um, so oh, basically, wow. goes in through a small incision between the ribs. Oh, wow. Um, that's often done or typically done for the most important of the three major arteries called the left anterior descending. You know it is the widowmaker. Um, and we use a mammary artery that essentially will last um, forever yeah, right. for that. And then sometimes if there's additional disease, um, the cardiologist may go in and stent those other, other vessels. Uh, one thing, I don't know if we're going to have time to talk about it, um, valve surgery. I want to get to that. Yeah, we're going to get to that. I, I, we're gonna, I know you guys are busy. It's not, you're not like you're sitting around, uh, you know, on the internet, surfing the internet. No, we're <laughs> no. not. Um, I'm sure they, they get you kept busy. But I, I, so I, just even for my own sake, I want to, because it's really interesting, no. you know, because again, when I was in medical school and, and I had some good training in Israel and, and here back in the United States, it was like, yeah, the rule of thumb basically sounded like, three vessel disease, um, left main artery, because that's your main one. If that's blocked, like you said, the widow maker. So that still kind of holds for cardiac surgery being preferable to stenting where th th that's where you maybe have some degree of blockage in 
one of the other arteries. And Dr. Roosevelt, tell me again too, also like when we're talking about blockage, is it more than, I mean, sometimes people get nervous, they say, oh, I'm 40% blocked. That's probably not so bad. And you probably wouldn't do surgery, right? I mean, it's more, is it more than 70, 80%? I mean. Yeah. And, and again, this, um, you know, it, it, this gets a little complicated, but yeah, we usually talk about 50% blockage. Because 50%. That's when it's uh, hemodynamically significant, but what makes it Confusing is that often the arteries that rupture um, and uh, form clots and then close off, um, and that's what causes a myocardial infarction or a heart attack, are often arteries that have less than 50% blockages. So the 50% blockage, as much as that is, um, what the minimum amount that starts slowing the blood flow it's really a marker of advanced disease. And um, as you know, there are other ways of uh, assessing advanced disease. You can look for calcium in the arteries. Yeah, I want to get to that too. We're going to, yeah, we're okay. going to get to that. Not we, to talk okay. about. But no, okay. right. Yeah, no, you, you, you're touching all things. Let me ask you one last thing about this too. Sort of, I guess, on the, on the post-op care. Has results gotten better with the newer anticoagulants like Eliquis, which I know patients are on it. I, I know they're on after stenting. I'm not sure. I guess they're on after bypass too. Is that part yeah. of the routine now? Well, well, just in general, when I, when I was uh, a resident or a young attending surgeon, um, you know, standards came out that said patients had to go home after heart surgery and four days. And back then we were keeping patients in the hospital for 10 days. And we right. said, this is, this is horrific to think that a patient could leave the hospital after four days after heart surgery is malpractice. And, you know, who would think of such a thing nowadays, four or five days after um, bypass surgery is the standard. Um, and that's not because we're pushing patients out the door. That's because um, the heart lung machine, the anesthesia, the medical treatment, um, even how we approach medical care has gotten so much better over the last 10 or 10 or 15 years. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that too, because I remember the stories, even when we started and I started an internship and residency, because also the patients, it's interesting. They were typically in the hospital for about, probably about a week because after they went to the coronary care unit, they had to go to what we call the floor, the regular medical floor, and they'd have more tests done, halters, whatever. But it was interesting because one of the cardiologists was saying, he goes, you know, back in the day, maybe in the 50s, whatever, we'd have a patient have a heart attack and we'd leave them in bed for two weeks straight and they would have another heart attack because they weren't moving. So we learned that it's not a bad thing to get people up and about, you know, so that they uh, they get the circulation going. Um, so. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. Uh, and people used to be kept on the ventilator overnight now, yeah. have, uh, patients off the ventilator. Sometimes even in the operating room, just like you would if you're having a hernia or a gallbladder um, done, but typically within six hours um, of the surgery and up walking around the day after surgery is is the expectation. You know, I remember also reading once, it was, believe it or not, of all my medical places, it was the New Yorker magazine. They were talking about a surgeon in New York. And I know you did training, I think, at NYU or Bellevue, that he was doing the surgery. Now, what was this? Without... Not the bypass machine. I'm, I'm yeah. not sure. So, because they were trying to avoid what's called that. What's it called? Brain. It was kind of like a brain fog from the bypass machine. Is that pump head? Pump head. Thank you. Thank you. Is, is that a, is that a real thing? And is are are you know more you know doctors doing without the the bypass machine? Yeah. So uh, what you're describing is called off pump surgery, and it's literally that we can um, uh, perform bypasses without using the heart lung machine. 
Um, that is actually was um, favored for about five years uh, as studies have come out. Um, it's much more limited. Um, part of the reason that's become fallen out of favor a bit again is the technology of um, doing um, heart surgery with the heart lung machine has gotten so much better. So that um, that issue of pump head, so to speak, in part was because um, early on uh, the knowledge and understanding of what blood pressure should be maintained using the heart lung machine was not as well deciphered. Um, other elements about how to make sure the cholesterol that might build up in the aorta didn't break loose and go to the brain and things like that. Um, so um, we do do uh, off pump surgery on occasion, much less than maybe five or 10 years ago. Uh, but it does, it's another one of the tools in our, our, um, our portfolio of making sure we have the right operation for the right patient. Okay. I'm gonna shift gears a little bit and I know you're a surgeon, but I really respect your view on the whole process of atherosclerosis. Um, you know, obviously for decades and probably still to this day, cholesterol is considered the enemy. Um, there's been changes in some of the thinking, you know, they th you know in, especially in, I think even among cardiologists, but again, the uh, functional medicine community that's inflammation and they wanna look at like CRP and all that stuff too. So I'm just curious your opinion. Do you still think at this juncture that heart, disease, atherosclerosis is mainly a lipid issue or is it an inflammation issue or is it yeah. both? That's a great question, Dean. And it's multifactorial, of course, and it, it's complicated. First of all, the advent of the statins in the 1980s is, was probably one of the greatest steps forward that and really? uh, smoking, smoking cessation. Right. And, um, you know, our, our parents, as you probably recall, <laughs> smoked they didn't eat no, well. my dad my dad used to have the cigar on the yeah, i hated it on the steps i hate it i wish he was a pipe smoker yeah, you know, at least it smells better <laughs> and uh, we we really didn't understand the diabetes of course hypertension all of those are very important they all contribute to coronary disease um you know they uh I've well do you think that's from the inflammation though or is, is it just physical or do you think that it's um you know, as they say, I mean, like there's even this whole area in my field like, of immunology of um, what do they call it? Um, inflammasomes. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar, you're familiar with that. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of these markers. And it's interesting because, I mean, you know, things like aspirin, which we could get into. Is it is it that it's an anticoagulant or is it actually also just anti-inflammatory? I'm just curious on your thoughts. No, well, that's a great question. The way to think of it, I, I would say, is that it's rare for someone to have advanced coronary disease if they don't have high cholesterol and or diabetic and mm -hmm. or hypertensive. Rare, exceedingly mm -hmm. rare. Okay. Uh, that said, patients who have coronary disease, some may have lesions or blockages that remain very, very stable for a very long time, mm -hmm. even regress if they're on statin therapy in some cases. Really? And conversely, there are other patients who have very, very rapid progression of disease. Mm -hmm. um, and much of that has to do with um, inflammation. Um, as it does to do with their cholesterol has gone up significantly, for for example. So both play a role, and okay. you, can't, you can't attribute it to one versus the other. They're all they're all important, and of course that's why we, uh, as physicians, um, as as you know, say no smoking, watch your cholesterol, watch your blood pressure. All all of the above are okay. are important. What about the omega three fatty acids? They got a lot of a lot of attention for a long time. 
Um, I think it was Alexander Leaf up at Harvard, you know, with promoted the fish oils. Um, any thoughts on that as far as how important they are um, yeah. in cardiovascular disease? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't single them out again as, as the panacea cure all. They, they uh, probably play a role in, in some circumstances. Again, I, I've, Dean, I've been on a statin for about 30 years. Oh, wow. Lower, it's lowered my cholesterol by 50 points. Wow. Um, these are miracle drugs. I would put them in the water if which I Which one do you, do you mind telling me? Which one do you take? I'm just curious. I take Crestor, but I've, okay. been, I've been on um, I've been on Lipitor. It, it, everyone can have different uh, side effects. Uh-huh. Um, and again, they are immeasurably well tolerated. Mm-hmm. Um, I know some of my friends have asked me about taking a, a statin like Lipitor, and they've been nervous. They've heard that it causes liver issues. Problems. Yeah. The risk benefit, the ability, uh, the value of these drugs in patients who are at risk. Um, so far exceeds any side effects. And literally there are probably billions of patient years of use. Yeah. Um, wow. It, it's uh, it, it's uh, exceedingly low that there's um, any kind of significant negative effect versus the good that they, they have done. If you want to talk about what has diminished the amount of um, angioplasty or coronary bypass procedures that have been done, I would say it's uh, it's uh, statins more than almost anything else. Any okay, other that this is huge. Yeah, I think for our listeners, this is really huge. That um, kind of moves me to the next question about diagnostics. Um, you know, back in the day, we did EKGs on patients, and you know, the kind of it seems like uh, gosh, seems like such a simplistic test these days. You know, and then for quite a while, stress testing, exercise stress exercise stress testing, thallium, like what we call nuclear testing. And of course, there's angiograms, which are a little bit more invasive. Uh, one of the things I learned about when I, I did some work with Dean Ornish out in California are PET scans, which I found very interesting because they deal with the flow. Uh, and now, of course, we have the calcium CT scores. Now, if you were in charge of healthcare, they said, Dr. Rosengard, we want to really eliminate, you know, all of these uh, surgeries in the future, et cetera. And, you know, money wasn't really an object, you know, for the nation. What would you test, would you, do you think be useful in any, quote, at-risk patient of the things I mentioned, stress testing, PET scan, calcium CT, that you think, unfortunately, is probably not routine, but might be important in somebody in their 50s, 60s, 70s that's trying to avoid um, significant heart issue? Yeah, well, uh, great question, Dean. And, and you know, unfortunately, I'm going to tell you all of the above are helpful. It is. Yeah. Okay. Um, for different reasons. So a, a CT angio, basically what this is, is a CAT scan. Everyone's familiar with a CAT scan. And it basically looks for calcium buildup in the arteries. That is a sign, going back to your comments, of inflammation and injury. Mm-hmm. It's just like uh, if you have arthritis of your knee, you build up calcium there. Same thing with the arteries. If you have damaged the arteries, you'll build up some calcium. So a negative CT, meaning you have a calcium score of zero, for example, is a very good sign that you do not have significant disease. Um, If you have some positive calcium score, um, that's just a positive screening test, and you need further studies to see the extent to which. What that- would be a concern with a calcium CT score? Is it like over like 30, 40, 50 percent or something of that nature? Well, they're not percent, they're, they're scores. What's oh, the score? It's a number, yeah. Yeah, I don't actually know how that okay. is scored. But okay. a positive score just means that something's going on and right. further evaluation. 
Okay. Now, at the end of the day, you're not going to have a uh, coronary bypass operation or an angioplasty without an angiogram, mm -hmm. uh, which basically, uh, for your listeners, is um, uh, a cardiologist will inject dye into the arteries uh, through an artery in the leg to get pictures of actually what the arteries look like and where mm -hmm. the blockages are. Those are very, very sensitive. You can see very, very small um, abnormalities in the arteries. So that's still the gold standard, believe it or not. And okay. even with better imaging with CAT scans and MRI, those are still not good enough to actually intervene and, and uh, be able to perform surgery with an adequate roadmap. Uh, so, let me ask you this, if I could too, I'm just really curious, with things like an angiogram, I mean, people don't realize this too, even about x-rays. There are some people much, you know, they're all qualified, but some are better than others. Is the angiogram fairly like standardized or is it dependent on the radiology, cardiology person reviewing it? Yeah, I mean, a straightforward diagnostic angiogram, basically taking pictures and see what's going on is becoming uh, so standardized, so safe, um, both the technique, the technology, the training of young cardiologists to perform angiograms. Um, whereas in the early days, in the 60s and 70s, this was a significant procedure. Today, it's an outpatient procedure. Interestingly, um, the um, access to the art artery can actually be obtained through the um, artery in the wrist. Wow. Uh, no longer. All right. They have to go to the groin anymore. Yeah. And that's literally an outpatient procedure. The wow. dye that's used has become very, very safe. The biggest risk of the dye is kidney injury. Mm. Um, the, uh, the dyes and the amount of um, a dye that is needed has become quite small. So major risk of uh, an angiography, coronary angiography is in the one in 10,000. Mm, it's wow. very, very small. Wow. Um, so I don't want to say not a big deal. It's sort of a, a serious undertaking, but on the scheme of things, it is a tri trivial risk. Yeah. And then between angiograms and CAT scans are all kinds of things. Uh, EKG is very insensitive. Mm -hmm. um, stress test, depending on what you add on, is, is uh, better. Um, stress echo, stress um, uh, uh, perfusion study, uh, for example, are helpful. But ultimately, you would need an angiogram if there's any indication that there's serious disease going on. Let me ask you one more question before we move on to valvular disease and a little bit maybe some of the research you've done over the years. Question on diet. You know, since as I said, I've had a lot of top people I've had from Dean Ornish, who, uh, believe it or not, said uh, when I was talking to him that uh, Michael DeBakey actually... Because Dean was trained at Baylor, he went to um, he went to medical school there, I think. Yeah, or he was there for a while. And uh, but anyway, later in his years, he and Debeke were in touch together. Debeke said he was following his program. Um, I had Barry Sears on, you know, the Zone Diet uh, biochemist, who's very big on the inflammation component. It, just curiosity, your thoughts, any personal things you're willing to share about what you've tried to follow over the years to stay healthy. Yeah, well, I mean, diet is important. We are what we eat, as the expression goes. And I, I think that's true. And not only from cholesterol, but um, diabetes, hyperglycemia, which are hemoglobin A1C, mm -hmm. hugely important um, health predictors, not, not just for coronary disease, but for all, all elements. And, um, you know, maintaining a good body weight, of course, is important too. But that said, I and I hate to give everyone this... Um, rescue, uh, rescue uh, um, boat, um, 
you know, you can diet um, to extremes and you can at max really impact your cholesterol by not more than 20% in general. Wow. Um, the impact of statins is, um, can be as much as double or triple that. Okay, so that's important. Um, that doesn't give you a license to- Well, you can't go out and start eating Big Mac, right. You can't go out and have Big Macs uh, four times a week and then just pop you your statin. Have, yeah. That doesn't, yeah, and a little bit of the fries on the side. So just out of curiosity, do you like limit the amount of red meat that you eat or do you eat fish a little bit more or you eat a fairly liberal diet? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I eat a reasonable diet. I, I think um, several, many things that have been um, uh, folklore in the past, like the badness of red meat is sort of dissipated now. And really? I think everything mm -hmm. in moderation is probably okay. High fat foods, of course, to the extent right. that's reasonable cheese, um, milk, you know, whole milk, um, there's probably better alternatives to those things. Um, but, it, but again, um, I hate to say it, but medication is, um, makes okay. a big difference. No, I, that's what, that's why I have you on. I could have a lot of these holistic people on who's saying, oh, you just have to, you know, eat a vegetarian, vegan diet, meditate some more. And I'm not against any of those things. And I think there's a place for them, but you know, when the rubber hits the, yeah. hits the road and, you know, that's why you have a doctor for it to, you know, yeah, to, and, and yeah. Let, let me just say one thing that will um, maybe make people be a little bit more reflective on this. Um, so not only um, is cholesterol affected by what you eat, but the liver, each of our us um, in our own livers, the liver um, manufactures cholesterol. Right. Um, and again, genetically or metabolically, a lot of that is not influenced by diet. It's influenced by, you know, your genetic makeup, right. which you inherit. So you could right. have a no cholesterol diet, which is not possible, right. and your liver will still be making cholesterol. So right. yeah. maybe just from a framework that sort of brings home why this debate between diet versus chemistry or genetics yeah. um, is, so, is so complicated. Yeah, uh, great, great points. Uh, I'm going to move over a little bit to something else that you, you guys do as cardiothoracic surgeons, which uh, pretty serious stuff is valvular disease. Yeah. Now. Back in the day, <laughs> before even I went to medical school, or I believe you went to medical school, rheumatic fever was a big thing actually for our parents. You know, they were, you know, if you got strep infections that were not treated, uh, sometimes decades later, you could get valvular disease, something called mitral valve stenosis. And I remember seeing patients in the hospital uh, being prepared for surgery to have their valve repaired. Uh, and back in those days, it was, I guess, either the pig valve or the, um, and then for the aortic valve, I believe they had, they had a lot of contraptions looked pretty scary. Uh, what's now today, there's like some amazing things going on with valve replacement. In fact, like it's also, uh, I think it's like sort of like a trans containous. I mean, I'm telling yeah. you where, you know, they, they actually slide the valve through the, yeah. Uh, explain to the, the, the listeners, no, because I'm still blown away by this. You know, yeah, no, it is. It is. Uh, and um, actually, we're coming up literally this year is our the 20th anniversary of really the first clinical application of what's called TAVR, Transarterial mm -hmm. Vascular Replacement. Mm -hmm. Literally, um, several companies and have different, many different models now, but this is going back um, 20 years. Um, figure out a way to basically fold the valve up. Um, valve is normally about, oh, an inch and a half, two inches in diameter. And uh, they figured out a way to uh, what's called crimping the valve down to about, oh, a quarter of an inch, um, small enough that it can uh, be advanced through the artery in the leg, typically the femoral artery. 
um, and then expanded um, in the place of the diseased aortic valve typically. Um, and now 20 years later, that has been shown um, to have results, especially in high risk individuals. So for example, someone who might be 80 years or older or very, very high risk for surgery for other reasons um, with a very, very um, impressive um, intermediate term uh, now about five or 10 years uh, where there's good studies um, that res long-term results are, are um, comparable in those patients uh, to patients who have surgical uh, uh, valve replacement. Wow. Um, so no opening the chest, no um, wow. uh, incision other than a very small incision. And uh, speaking as a surgeon, I, I can say that there is there is absolutely indication for that kind of surgery, um, especially in high-risk patients. Now, we still do not have good long-term data um, on those what's called percutaneous or through-the-skin valves, but uh, certainly high-risk patients, early results um, are, uh, in many, many studies now, have been very compelling. Um, the other thing that we're doing is if you do need surgical procedure, it again can be done without opening the chest. It can be done between the ribs, wow. uh, what we call thoracoscopic surgery or even robotic surgery. And importantly, increasingly, especially for leaky valves, so not narrowed valves, but leaky valves, we typically can and, and should be expected to repair the valve. So you keep your own valve rather than replacing it. Is that, is that also in the other ones you were mentioning too? Like let's say when you said you have the disease valve through the uh, percutaneous procedure or whatever too, they don't have to remove the damaged valve, it just stays there and the better valve gets sort of fitted over it or something? That's exactly right. So for TAVR, which is yeah. typically refers to uh, replacement of the aortic valve, basically you go in there and you crush open the calcified disease native valve and you literally in its place put in this um, artificial valve. Which what is the now. valve made out of? I'm just curious, because that was always the issue about you know immune attack or clots and stuff like that. Too. Yeah. What, what's made it better? Because yeah. that was always the issue, especially those, you probably read in books, <laughs> like those ball and valve ones that yeah. people used to get clots all the time. And it was, it was well, really well, horrible. Well, those are long gone. And typically yeah. valves uh, come from a cow. Um, not okay. actually a cow's valve. They come from, coincidentally, the lining of a cow's heart called the pericardium, which is a very strong, tough tissue. And then the other thing that's happened is the technology has gotten so good, whereas um, 10 or 20 years ago, those valves wore out essentially in about 15 years. Uh, with the new preservation techniques that are available, those valves essentially will last essentially forever. Um, so if you do need a replacement, the long-term results are, are very, very good. So there's no like kind of what we call xenograft reaction to these things anymore? No, because they become uh, um, uh, treated in a way that they lose their antigenicity. So the body does wow. not recognize them as, as foreign. Oh, wow. Um, that brings me to probably our last area topic, but, and this is funny because, you know, periodically I was following your career <laughs> when you were, at, I think you were at Stony Brook, it was on the front pages of the paper. You, I, I could be wrong, but it was something that you were injecting stem cells into coronary yeah. arteries, right? Do I have a good memory? Um, I was thinking about this last night before our podcast. I got to come up with some really good stuff yeah. here. Um, is that in the future? Um, I mean, even whether it's with heart transplants or, 
valvular disease or coronary artery disease that, that stem cells may be yeah. an answer? And are, are you looking at that or is that somebody else looking at that kind of research? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. So hopefully uh, you saved the best for last. Um, okay. So no, we, um, so there's, there's a couple of different things and I'm going to put stem cells to the side for a second, but um, company that I'm working with called Xylocor just completed um, enrollment in a phase two trial where we actually inject a gene into the heart muscle, and this gene called VEGF causes new blood vessels to grow. Wow. And for patients with advanced disease who are not candidates for angioplasty or coronary bypass, uh, we have some very encouraging initial data that actually shows we can have the patients grow their own bypasses. Oh um, gosh, and wow. although I'm, I can't quite get into the details, we're very, very excited with the results. And we have a number of patients who uh, came in with essentially incapacitating chest pain or angina and have had dramatic improvements in their ability, uh, in their symptoms, uh, in their ability to get on the treadmill and do well. And we even have some very exciting results related to their blood flow uh, to their heart. Wow. So, wow. That's one area that we're working on. That's literally already in patients in clinical trials. Um, but the other area that we're working on is actually taking scar tissue, putting a different cocktail of genes into the scar tissue and having the scar tissue cells called fibroblasts turn back into heart muscle cells. Oh, wow. Um, so when you and I were in med school, if uh, you told me that you could take one cell and turn it into a scar cell and turn it into a muscle cell, you'd say the person was crazy. Right. Um, now, we and a number of other groups actually do this routinely. Um, so my belief, at least, is that rather than injecting stem cells, you can actually inject genes into the heart muscle and have your own cells, again, this uh, same concept of, you know, better have your own than something foreign and have your own cells turn sure. cell type into another. Mm. So some of this stuff is still early. The, uh, this regeneration that I'm talking about is still in animal studies, but there are a number of companies around that are working on this. And it's, it's amazingly exciting. It all started from stem cell theory um, and, um, you know, knowledge, but it's actually advanced to this other level of understanding that once you become a skin cell or a bone cell, it doesn't mean that cell is necessarily forever um, what we call differentiated into that cell. We can change them from one type to another. And the example, just uh, for comparison, is when we were kids, you know, you always thought about the uh, story of the the salamander who has its tail chopped off and grows a new tail. And the question is, how come a salamander can do that, but humans can't? And we now pretty much understand why that is. And we can, with gene therapy, we can go ahead and uh, essentially uh, learn the lesson from the salamander and do some of those things ourselves, which is an amazing chapter. And going back to where we started, I feel like this is to our generation, what you did, for his generation can first tackle things like repairing aneurysms. Mm. So do you think, or is it too sci-fi-ish that one day also this whole idea with 3D printing will be 3D printing valves and hearts? I mean, could you see that within our lifetime or that's still many? Wow. Well, for, um, well, for example, you know the work that recently went on where there was a um, somewhat successful transplant of a pig heart. Yes, that was recently, um, which, yeah. Mm. Which had become humanized um, into, into a human. And, mm. uh, although that, unfortunately those initial, um, 
uh, cases uh, did not result in long-term success. The patient uh, passed away. That knowledge is really getting very, very close to uh, crossing that threshold to actually working. I have no doubt um, things like heart transplant or artificial heart are going to uh, go by the wayside and be replaced by these biologic uh, mm. therapies. Wow. Wow. I'm kind of blown away. I, uh, as I said, I was looking forward to this. As I said, you know, the cardiology, cardiothoracic part of my practice is kind of limited. I do a lot of immunology, infectious disease, but I was so curious as to what's really changed. You know, I just, I read about it in the New England Journal, but to hear from a top heart surgeon firsthand, uh, it's had a pretty big impact for me. I hope my listeners have enjoyed this and the viewers on YouTube, you know, having Dr. Todd Rosengard take time out of his super busy day to do this, I'm really appreciative. So thank you, Todd. And uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review uh, and uh, stay tuned for next time.